I'll be up front and say like, look, you got to suck it up, right? Financial freedom is not for everybody. It's only for those who can stick to a plan and delay gratification. It's not a get rich quick thing. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome in Contrarian Cashflow. I've got Lane Kawaoka with me today. Lane, how are you doing, my man? Good. Thanks for having me, John. Super excited for this conversation. So Lane, uh, if you don't know, he is currently a resident in the state of Hawaii and former engineer. I call him the mad scientist of passive income because he has such a wide breadth of creative ways to, to make income. But, uh, but Lane, I know you've got a lot of things in the pipe right now. What are you working on? Just always trying to pick up cash flow, right? Or less classy deals, better tenants, more yield plays, more cash flow. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. It's not about taking a big home run cuts. You'll find those here and there. So I've actually invested in a deal with Lane before. Um, one of the reasons that I really liked working with him and his partner, Kyle, was just their expertise of the, the particular market, Huntsville, Alabama. So know that they've got a pretty exciting ground up development deal that they're working on right now that has been super simple, right? Yeah. People always say, well, why are you doing a development deal? It's like, well, Look, I've got, I'm in over a couple dozen yield deals that are like value add. Let, let me take a swing at it, man. I'm up eight runs. Let me go crank a home run. I'm tired of these base hits. Right? <laughs> you got to take that risk every once in a while, right? You know? Yeah, each their own, right? Like I'm, I'm bored, right? Boring is good in terms of some of these investments, but sometimes I want to move a little bit more towards this side. I'm not saying that it's a startup or some kind of risky endeavor. It's still within the world of real estate. It has still has its retained value, but yeah, I mean, I kind of talk a lot about like the sharp ratio. You want to take an adequate amount of risk for an equal amount or potentially more reward, right? I mean, that's that's we're all just kind of making little bets here and there. Absolutely. And I think one point you're kind of touching upon is the price of existing for these value add deals is getting pretty darn close, if not commensurate in a lot of markets to what ground up construction costs. So if you can stomach the challenges of getting through the entitlement and, and all those plays, I mean, you're getting a, a brand new building developed and delivered for pretty much what you're paying for as is, you know, previous constructed 20, 30 year old building. So I think that's a tremendous idea and, and, and a play in this particular market. So I do want to call out real quick for any of my listeners, definitely go check out Lane's podcast. He's just a wealth of knowledge in regards to creating cash flow, understanding risk tolerance, and just overall investing best practices. So that's, that's kind of how I got turned on to him. And the most recent episode really spoke to me because it just really talks a lot about mindset and defining your why. And uh, it was kind of fun because I think it was kind of hearing Lane think through some of, uh, you know, some of the things that are important to him and why he's pursuing some of those avenues. So uh, for any of my listeners out there, definitely go check him out. Simplepassivecashflow.com. Highly recommend anybody to, uh, to check out the podcast. Yeah, I was a little surprised you liked that one, but I, I try and s sprinkle those in very sparingly. I mean, but let's face it, right? Like for high net worth investors who are more passive, I mean, life's pretty simple. It's not about like burring and wholesaling and tax liens and all this complicated stuff. When you're a high net worth investor, it's pretty simple. 
right? Invest in good deals. Here's how to look at it. Infinite banking, tax, legal. There's a simple set of best practices. So, I mean, I, that's why I do those type of podcasts here and there because I'm running out of crap to talk about, right? Like, <laughs> there's not much to talk about. Like simple passive, right? Like running out of stuff to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the biggest crux for that conversation and kind of what I want to touch upon here is defining that why and that overarching, you know, if, it, if it's always about money, you, you'll get there and you'll be able to, to create that level of income and that level of net worth. But at what cost and at what level of fulfillment. And I think that's kind of the, you know, a lot of the point is defining that why and having a bigger purpose beyond that. So, well, Lane, I think your story is so interesting because you had an extremely successful career as a professional engineer. You've gotten a master's degree. So I guess if we could kind of start at the beginning, because through your show, you talk a lot about how even in college and stuff, you were doing all these crazy credit card hacks and, uh, you know, trade line scenarios. So, so what even got you intrigued in the first place and kind of gamifying all these different systems? I guess maybe it was the engineering background or the, you know, <laughs> the figuring everything out. I mean, this is the way we grew up, I think, like we pretty frugal. So, you know, you start to everything, money is not everything, but for like, I think I guess the way I grew up, money was very important, right? Money means not, not freedom, but that means not being out on the street, I think. So everything was go get money go get money, therefore, go get a job, therefore, study hard, go get some practical engineering degree because you happen to be decent at math and science when I'm in my eight or nine, right? Like, it's so prudent and so practical. I think, I think that a lot of high net worth professionals working, right, it kind of led down this life of what I call the linear path of this is what you're supposed to do. But yeah, I mean, but it, you get your initial capital right to invest so you can eventually get yourself free in five to ten years and then kind of define your life the way you want yeah and i think that's something that i struggle with too is kind of just like you said that linear path around hey this is what you're supposed to do you go to college you get a good job you make a good income you grow your net worth to a certain level but then you get, you get there, and this is something that I've struggled with personally, you get to a certain level, and I'm not saying I've attained an extreme level of wealth, but you know, relatively speaking, a fair level of wealth, and it didn't feel any different. You know, My kids didn't look at me any differently. My car in the driveway didn't change. I wasn't drinking Mai Tais on a beach uh, next to Lane out there on the islands. So where did the mindset shift actually happen when you were, had this great job, you were making a lot of money, you had some decent time freedom in the job, but that just ended up not being enough from a fulfillment perspective for you to continue down. I never got to like this epiphany moment. I mean, I, I was just like any other person. I got to put my own oxygen mask on. When I first bought my first rental back in 2009 and I got like a several hundred dollars of cash flow every month, I was like, but dang, this is, this is something I got to like repeat again and again and again. And, you know, I can extrapolate on a spreadsheet how long it's going to take. It wasn't going to be a, a get rich quick scheme, but it was my ticket out of the rat race. So I just slowly replaced my income at that dreaded day job that I didn't quite like going to. But then I, it took me about seven, five, seven years thinking about this stuff all day long, going to work every single day, and then seeing my cash flow number get up to a point where I had probably like a few thousand dollars of cash flow coming in. Wasn't enough to leave my day job, but the proof of concept was there. And I knew very soon, maybe like a few years after that, that I would be able to quit my day job. But then what happens at that point? And I think that's one thing I'm good at, not to pat my back on my shoulder and throw up my shoulder, but 
like I can like plan ahead, you know, like I can like empathize with myself in the future. All right, I'm a dude that has six or ten thousand dollars of passive a month. All right, what am I going to be doing at that point, right? And I think that was where I had this epiphany a lot earlier than most people. And most people never get to that point, right? Most people get to retirement age, retire, and just live off their money, and it's not that much money. <laughs> so yeah, no, absolutely, and I, and I think that's one thing that it took me a little bit longer to get to that epiphany point of kind of understanding, you know, Hey, what's, what is fulfilling and where am I trying to get to and what am I kind of doing this for? And so, so when you got there, I know you did a pretty good job crafting your exit from, from the corporate world. I know you talk before about, you know, you really weren't working that many hours even at the time. So you had done a good job kind of creating this schedule and architecting, you know, the life that you wanted within that portion of your life. But what was the actual exit like and, and what did you do to prepare yourself I guess, mentally, but then also financially, just to make sure that, hey, this number I'm attaining is enough to feel comfortable leaving this strong profession. Yeah, I mean, initially, my first like six, seven years, I worked for a private company and, and you know, generate private companies a little bit more stressful and higher pay. I moved more to public sector government jobs where it's a little bit more cruise. So that was sort of on purpose as, you know, my net, my passive cash flow crept up. I kind of took pay cuts, but I mean, my, you know, when you progress to a professional career, you don't really take pay cuts. Um, you just get paid your, uh, your seniority at rate. Like, so I was getting, you know, I was kind of staying the same income level about just sub six figures about there. Still pretty frugal at that point, but all the money was going to investments. I mean, usually I would usually put away 30 to $60,000 every year to buying a rental property for more than half a decade, I would say. How did you go about, so I mean, you said living frugally. So I think that's a really interesting concept because I think a lot of times when people see getting to this level of getting to quit your job or pursuing this other passion, they're not willing to sacrifice you know, the, the needful to actually get there. So w what were you able to do in your mind to really understand, hey, you know, that delayed gratification, waiting for those investments to really come to fruition and generate that cash flow in the future? to kind of in your head to say, hey, you know, I really, it's better for me not to go buy that new car, buy that new, you know, whatever, Xbox, whatever the case is. What, what did you do or what in your mind made it so that you could actually, you know, pass by those material objects? Yeah, I mean, I'll be up front and say like, look, you got to suck it up, right? Financial freedom is not for everybody. It's only for those who can stick to a plan and delay gratification. Um, it's not a get rich quick thing. But I... I know how to use Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. So I was able to figure out how long it would take for me to live lean to have the life that I want. It's just a math exercise. But the cool thing about when you start to invest in like real assets that are making like 20, 30% a year, like a tur turkey rental makes that much, right? Like the cash flow, you may be only cash flowing five to 10% easily, but you're making money with tax benefits, mortgage pay down, the tenants paying down your mortgage and appreciation you're making damn near 20, 30%. And when you start to extrapolate that math out on a spreadsheet, you can quickly see how long it'll take you to get to that cash flow number or that net search of net worth standpoint. So it's not like you have, when you invest in this type of way, and especially when you don't pay any taxes, <laughs> I just got my tax return today. Like it just, your, your eons faster than how traditional wealth building strategies are. And you don't have to wait 30, 40, 50 years. Really, it's, it's a pretty much, for guys listening right now, if you guys are able to save 30 to 50 grand a year, dude, you'll be out of a rat race in five to 10 years. 
Yeah, and you have maybe a few hundred thousand dollars of liquid today, like you'll be you'll be done pretty damn quick. So part of this is like, yeah, I can. I don't know what was that movie where the guy just like Unbreakable, like the movie where like the guy just fits through all this crap. I can't. I can't think of the <laughs> they one. They just put him through the ringer, right? And it's like such so horrible the tor the torture he goes through. And I'm like, I don't think I could do that. But if you tell me that all I need to do is suck it up for three to seven years, you can maybe do that if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So that's how it was for me. And I think I would encourage people, put it on a spreadsheet, figure it out, how long it's going to take you to live at this level. So, okay, so you've got, you started off with some rentals. What, what's been really your progression from an investing perspective to get to, to where you are today? You know, you started with some rentals, obviously you've dabbled in some syndications. Now you're, you know, a GP on, on many projects. So what, what was that progression like? And yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I kind of went the route that most, I think, busy working professionals. I went the more turnkey rental amount. I got 11 rentals. I spread them around. I had like five in Atlanta, four in Birmingham, Indy, and Pennsylvania. I had a, a couple there. But I, I got to a point where I realized it just wasn't scalable. I mean, do the math, right? At a few hundred dollars of cash over property, that's what it means to be 3000 Not to say that I'm not thankful for that, but like, look, I don't know what American family can survive off that. So you're going to need a lot more of properties. And for that many properties, I had an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe, like a plumbing leak that goes into the basement, a tree fall on the house, something like that every quarter, which is no problem because I advocate for everybody to use professional third-party property management to do all your dirty work for you. Remember, we're our investors, not landlords. So you start to extrapolate that out. All right, maybe I have 30 of these houses. Now you multiply all those numbers by three and it definitely becomes a headache. And this is about the same time I got lucky where I started to join more um, accredited investor type of masterminds, got around you know, more affluent people. And I realized the way that they invested was a lot more passively into private placements and syndications where they're able to diversify over you know, different projects, different partners, different asset classes, different geographic locations. And they don't do jack or squat. They don't do anything. <laughs> right? They just invest passively. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's so important. I mean, that's one thing that I'm struggling with. I think you still own a couple of your rentals, right? Do you have any single family rentals within your portfolio? Yeah, still? just I I mean, because I, I haven't had the time to get rid of them. I mean, they're they've been vacant for a year. <laughs> So I'm struggling with right now, kind of to what you were talking about. Um, I've got some rentals here uh, in a great location right near downtown Raleigh, NC State, right near the college. And, you know, they, they were boardroom type. So they're four bed, four bath condos. And it's like, you know, they, they've just gone gangbusters because who wouldn't want that near university? But with the, with the um, immigration reform, I mean, so we used to have a ton of international students that would stay in our, so the, so a lot of the international students have not come back to campus yet because of COVID. So that's a big spot. And then also there, it's a shared common area in the middle of it. So who wants to live with random people in the middle of COVID, right? You know, so all of a sudden, so we've had a huge challenge with occupancy. And then, you know, of course, water heater goes out, there's a thousand dollars and that's, you know, with occupancy at 50 or 75%, you know, that, that eats up, you know, that's at least a third or quarter of the year of profit, uh, if not more. And so I think that's one of the reasons that I've myself transitioned more into the syndication and the larger deals as well as the economies of scale. And you can insulate yourself and protect yourself from some of those challenges, you know, water, a couple of water heaters go out, a couple HVACs go out. You've already accounted for that within your CapEx budget. Whereas when it's an individual rental, something like that happens, you've got to write off pretty much the entire year from a cash flow perspective, which is just no fun. 
Yeah, and I'll just add on to that, that like if you're listening right now and your net worth is under a quarter million, half million, don't listen to what we're saying. Go out and remember we spent like years building up our net worth and experience level to do the bigger stuff. Not saying that, I mean, a lot of accredited investors just become passive investors in syndications right away, but definitely um, if you're below that, I got up to about 600,000 doing it all by myself with single family homes. And then that was where I pivoted and went straight to the NBA, bro. Right. I didn't stop. I didn't screw around with the two to 20 units. I went straight to the big stuff. And thankfully I did. But um, yeah, this is, this is all what I call the simple passive cash flow journey. Right? There's a progression on this. It's, yeah, syndications are better in my opinion, but you need the connections. And how do you get the connections? Well, you build a bit of uh, street credibility. You actually know what you're talking about. How do you do that? You go buy a rental property. You don't need to own it for that long. You can pretty much learn pretty much what the gist of it is in three to six months. But uh, you know, that's why I recommend a lot of guys pick up a rental property, just learn the basics, right? Because the problem too is you're, you're not going to be able to effectively build relationships with other passive investors because you, you're a newbie. You don't know anything. Why would anybody want to interact with you? And number two, the hard thing with syndications is like all the pitch decks look alike. They're all created by some... Filipino VA for like 50 bucks, right? And it look amazing. <laughs> there's really nothing in the pitch deck that really tells you if it's a good deal. And if you, sometimes there's a little clues if it's a sucker deal or not, but if you're not a sort of a sophisticated investor and own a rental property or two, you, you don't have a shot. That, that was tremendous. I mean, I, I think that's so important about kind of, and for me personally, I think the iterative type steps were instrumental in my personal growth and understanding to your point, because there's, you see a lot of folks out there saying, Hey, just jump in head first, you know, take, you know, hundred unit deal could be your first deal. No, no problem. You know, it's easy. And to your point, understanding all those bogeys and those pitfalls throughout, because the complexity of, of, to your, what you were just talking about, looking at two private placement offerings, the complexity of breaking them down individually about why one is better than the other, regardless of just the return profiles, takes a long time and a lot of investment of time and, and effort understanding the debt, <laughs> you know, the business plan, you know, is it an aggressive value add? Is it a light value add? What's the, what's the local market like? And I think that's one thing that I'm seeing more and more is because the space is getting more and more saturated. There's more and more people out there thinking that, hey, this is something I can do in easier. People are starting to flex more rural areas. You know, you're starting to see a lot of deals, you know, in sub 200,000 people MSAs. Tertiary uh, markets, we call those. Yeah, exactly. And, and not saying that those things can't make money, but... I would just be very cautious in looking at those type of scenarios because there's a lot more risk factors instead of say a Huntsville, say a DFW, say a, you know, Raleigh, Durham, you know, all these other markets that are seeing this, this great growth curve. Maybe you're sacrificing some of the return profile that you could get in these tertiary markets. But if the bottom falls out and if employment drops substantially in that tertiary market and, and you can't sell your deal and you're coming up, you know, against a balloon or something like that, you know, that could really be a substantial impact. So how did you go from, you talked about these mastermind groups and being around these accredited investors, but I mean, your growth be, to becoming a GP on some of these larger deals was pretty exponential. So, so what was that like? And, and how were you able to do that? And what was your first deal? I mean, I, I initially just went the passive route, right? Because I realized, I mean, I was, I was a big coach and how to do that stuff. And I just realized I didn't like doing it. I especially didn't like interacting with brokers and like, kissing butt, doing that stuff. And I, 
I was living in Seattle at the time. Now I'm living in Hawaii. There's no way I can go and like do a due diligence trip um, and then put my name up, up to the top of that bidding list just on a relationship. And, you know, the sellers want you to actually visit the property to smash that before they accept your offer. So I think that's a big misnomer that nobody ever talks about, like that whole getting the deals, right? I mean, there's a lot of deals out there, but only 0.01% of them actually make sense. And you ain't going to get them unless you've closed several hundred deals yourself. Um, that's just how the game works. That's how brokers get paid, right? They get paid on deals closed. They don't care if the deal the deal sells for a million dollars more than what it was. They don't care. I went about 18 months of kind of banging my head against the wall. I, I kind of regressed to just being a passive because I knew how to underwrite the deals, right? That was a good thing of this whole experience. I stretched that far to at least learn how to see that. Um, and then I realized, yeah, at my income level and where my net worth was at currently, yeah, if I just invested my money and make, you know, Maybe I didn't double my money every five years, but maybe if I got like a 12 to 13% IR, I'm going to be able to quit my day job well before I'm 40 and I'm good, right? And so like you were saying at the top, right? Like define your why, what's your goal? Um, so that was the, that was the first, my first step, right? I would say changed after that, but that was why I headed off in that direction. Being a professional LP, that's what I did. Well, and, and I think one thing you just spoke of right there is the return profile. And I think that's another misnomer that's out there. And that's one of the things why I love your commentary so much is you're pretty blunt, uh, you know, to say the least. And, um, and I think a lot of times people think that it's, you know, hey, invest 25, 50,000, even $100,000. And, you know, you're going to create generational wealth in no time. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. And, and one of the biggest things that I think people kind of take for granted is to be able to be a professional professional LP is to have a lot of capital to invest. And the only way to have <laughs> a lot of that, right? You need money. <laughs> I mean, and the only way to have that capital to invest is to create that capital over and over again. If it's, you know, I'm not de defining how you should be doing that. If it's through a W2 or if it's through a business venture or, you know, being able to trade your time for money is you know, in regards to being on, on a GP, but I just think you got to be careful when you're hearing all these different avenues to generational wealth and how simple and easy it is of a process that, you know, even if you've got a million dollars investable, you're making an eight pref on your deals. That's $80,000 a year in, in income. And in a lot of markets in this country, if you've got a family of four or five or six, that's going to be really tough to, to live off that individually. And that's, we're talking about a million dollars investable. So just make sure before you start thinking that this is such a smooth and you know easy process that you're just in it for the long haul and you're doing it for the right reasons saying, hey, I'm going to define this. And to Lane's point before, make sure that you've really got your numbers tight in regards to what you actually need and the number you need on a monthly basis to cover your expenses and to be comfortable. So, so what was the first deal? I'd love to hear the story about the first deal you got in on that you were on the, on the GP side. How'd you meet that team? You know, is it, do you guys still have it within your portfolio or have you exited that deal so far? I, mean, I think that one, I signed on the debt because I wanted, at the time I was trying to get my key principal, like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac card, as we call it in the industry. At the time, I thought that was a big deal for me to get. I kind of changed my mind on that, but that was what I was my intermediate goal at the time. So that was kind of my first foray into jumping into the general partnership and um, did that a, kind of a bunch of times and kind of got a seat at the, what they call it the, they have to use an airplane analogy, right? With the cockpit, there's like the jump seat where the, where the other co-pilot just sits on board and just kind of is able to watch. So I, I was able to sit in a lot of jump seats 
um, with different partners and kind of learned vicariously that way in the beginning. What type, what type of markets did you target when you were looking at particular deals? So big thing for my business plans that I like to go into is like it has to cash flow day one. So it says all coastal markets, right? Nothing in California, nothing on the East Coast, nothing in Hawaii, Washington. So got to be more of a cash flow, more secondary or tertiary market. And then the, the population has to be increasing due to economic growth. So that leaves us to all the uh, household names like Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, those types of, of markets. Um, I'm not really big on like any one market. I'll, I'll underwrite the deal accordingly based on the market. Um, I'll tweak the reversion cap rate, the rent increases per year, and the assumed occupancy is how based on the market. Um, and I just play around the numbers. So obviously you talk about that particular deal and now you've been on a multitude of different deals. So, I mean, what, what kind of is the progression now and, and what are you looking for that's changed? Initially it was, hey, I want to sign on the debt to get this, you know, this Freddie Fannie card. What's kind of your goal and overarching why at this point right now? Yeah, so I think the way it all kind of started is like people, like they were listening to my podcast since 2016. They at the initial part, like my first like dozen podcasts are all about buying a turnkey rental, how to get started. And then in the background, I was kind of learning, you know, it took me about a year or two to kind of get into the multifamily stuff to really understand it because like what I was doing was working, right? So I get these older guys that are like stuck in their ways because in a way I was a little bit. But when I see rich people doing something different, I get envious and I want to know what they're doing. So that's why I eventually changed and pivoted. But, um, but yeah, I guess, so I started to, um, I had like an inner circle in my group. Now it's kind of built out a little bit more, but then people were just like, you know what? I'm busy. You seem to be interested in this. Can I just copy what you do? I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, so that was kind of the birth of the Hui Dopai Blank Club where I was putting my own money in the deal and people just wanted to vicariously copy and then we all signed the same documents as passive investors so how bad can it be right and then obviously that kind of got me in a bunch of partnerships um kissed a few frogs along the way and through that i i kind of changed my thinking as of like well if my friends and families and friends on the internet are following me into deals i want to be have a lot of control over what's happening in case I need to boot out a general partner, you know? So, and I want to have control of what's happening operationally too. So that's where that kind of second pivot happened. And then that kind of brings us to kind of my operating procedure on my operation side today, how I run my, my deals. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being willing to offer that up around the kissing the frogs because I think, again, that's another thing that I see a lot is people just starting to partner up with no real reason as to other than, hey, two heads are better than one, you know, without defining, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are and if they really are, you know, the best fit in regards to a partnership. And so, I mean, you have what a lot of people aspire to, especially in the syndication space, and you've got, you know, a wide swath of passive investors that are, you know, interested in the deals that, that you're able to take down. So what's a day in the life like? You know, what's it like having, having that? I think everyone aspires to that, but I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear kind of once you actually attain that, you know, what's it like and what are the demands on your time and, and yeah. 
I mean, I'm busier than I used to be. That's for sure. I don't have my engineering job anymore. So all day is working deals, talking to investors. You know, I kind of outsource my partners or more. They have a relationship with the brokers, right? They're the ones in the beginning kind of doing the legwork on the unmaterialized deals. So I don't really deal with any of that type of stuff. I don't, I don't put something into the spreadsheet unless we already know it's going to make money, put it that way. So that's a lot of heavy lifting there that I think a lot of people will have a VA do initially, like just take all the P&Ls, all the rent rolls and throw it into the analyzer, all that grunt work that'll get done. But I don't do any of that stuff. I only get the winners. And then I kind of just kind of just cherry pick the ones I like. And that's kind of what I do. And then I, I kind of split my time with like, I have a, a mastermind group of passive investors. I kind of do the more education side too. I, I enjoy that more because to me deals, if I had an infinite amount of money, I probably wouldn't do deals because deals go good and bad, right? It's risky. Um, I think it's way better than the stock market, but it's it's risk. And if I could just sit on the beach all day long and do nothing, I would want stress in their life. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I enjoy like the, the family office consulting. Like, cause to me, going into deals is a big part of it. But now that the level I'm at, I'm seeing that it's only a third of it. Yeah, you got to put your money into deals and get the passive losses. But once you get said passive losses, now, like, how do you make it where your AGI is like, I mean, I'll say it like I, this morning I got my taxes back. My AGI was 25 grand. That's absurd. Wow. Ridiculous. I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but I'm assuming in the past, they, they, I don't know. They, that's where you work with a good CPA, but like, that's the other third of it, right? Is the tax. How do you pay little to no taxes legally, right? All within the code. And then the other, the last third is like, how do you create your infinite banking policies and your legacy, your trust, your legal? And that's what I enjoy more, right? Because I know what the best practices are and they're very simple, right? Simple passive cash flow, but like very little people can tie them all together, I think. And that's, that's my USP. I mean, yeah. So you, I mean, you define it as simple and maybe within their own, you know, variables, you know, or their own <clears throat> segments, they are simple, but obviously, like you said, kind of marrying those all together is what gets extremely complex. And when you start talking about what you're doing within the tax code and, you know, the infinite banking strategies, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a rabbit hole that I've started to go down a little yeah. bit and you can really start chasing your tail all over the place when there's so much material out there. Um, you know, it's definitely challenging. And, and that's why I think it's great to have a resource like yourself that can really kind of help advise people that are out there around, you know, Hey, this is kind of the best practice. And, you know, this is yeah. what I did and this is how it may be able to help you. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Like, you like 1031 exchanges, these solo 401ks. I mean, they're only good in certain scenarios. They're, they're just tools to me. Only in certain scenarios do they make sense. Like, for example, I only will use like a solo 401k if a guy has a lot of money in a retirement account and his AGI is over 300 grand. If not, just suck it up, pay the taxes, get the money out of retirement, for example, right? 1031 exchanges, I don't do that. I got bonus depreciation offset my capital gains. So, Therefore, I tell, you know, I'm like, you can go waste your time and you learn that stuff, but it doesn't apply to you, right? It, like, it's, this, it's the same thing of like people walking in the dark, right? When you walk in the dark, you're clueless. You, you got to go so slow. But once you illuminate the world and simplify things, right, things get so much easier. And for high net worth investors, there's only a few things that you can do. 
But unless the world of, is eliminated to you, now you're tripping over yourself with tax liens, wholesaling deals, burr this, burr that, right? Like all this like nonsense that's more geared for a lower net worth investor. Absolutely. And so I think it's just kind of, again, looking back at defining what your why is and what the, you know, what the tool for the specific solution is. So obviously you've been able to get extremely educated. What's been the best practice for you personally about, has it been networking? Has it been books? Has it been podcasts? How have you derived the most educational value so that you've been able to implement all these strategies to, to get your AGI down to 25K? Yeah, I mean, books, you're not gonna hear about any of this stuff in books. Books is like old. By the time it's written, it's obsolete. Podcasts are cool to a certain extent. Like I usually suggest people listen to podcasts for about a year, year and a half. But if you're still listening, dude, you're just listening to the same marketing stuff again and again and again. Because a lot of these tech, like these tax things or these, these, these tactics will change. They won't change too often, but like, you know, when Congress goes in and out every two to four years, things will kind of change. So best practices change. It really is just surrounding yourself with like, like the high quality people. And like they say, like your network is your net worth, right? Building relationships with certain people who know what the heck they're doing in your situation and bouncing ideas off of them and masterminding. I mean, that's, that's the way I've kind of discovered all this stuff. And I, I just lucky because people want at my attention because I have a podcast and they want access to my audience. So I'm able to use that, you know, to open up doors. So I've just been able to kind of capitalize on that. Well, I mean, you know, luck or skill, you know, however you want to define it. I mean, you were the one that took the time and, and the effort to, to build up the podcast. And obviously that's a testament to, to your aptitude and ability. So, um, you know, I mean, I think that's an important lesson just for folks out there is when you have a platform and a mouthpiece, people, people are going to be gravitated towards it because that's an opportunity for them to, to go out and market. And that's one thing that I've kind of learned personally as well is that, you know, people are willing to, to, to have a conversation with somebody that may not pick up the phone and have a 15 or 20 minute conversation with me would be willing to come on the podcast. So just something interesting yeah. if you're out there looking, uh, you know, to start something up. I mean, I definitely would recommend it rather than not. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll straight up say it is a humble break here, but like, I mean, I'm looking at a deal that outside of my area of expertise, but um, I am able to get access to high net worth family offices that specialize in this area and they'll be able they're they're willing to walk a property for me because I can add value in other ways to them, which is invaluable. Right. I can when I talk to operators, I get I get references where most times, especially if you're not a credit investor, they tell you to go pound sand. They're not going to give you their access to their investor list. So you're going to be crazy, right? They're not going to get give you that. So those are the doors I open. But that said, that doesn't help anybody. I would say the best advice is like, just make sure you got to meet people. You got to kiss a few frogs. The best advice I can give is like, just watch where you hang out. Going to free internet websites and the local RIAs is just where you're going to find unsophisticated newbies or sharks out there. Find high network credit investors, the ones that are doing it the right way and build real relationships with them and keep them close throughout the years. Well, there's a pretty simple, maybe not so passive, but a simple strategy to help grow and, and educate yourself. And I think that's one thing that people do gloss over at times is, I mean, you even mentioned it before, it took you almost two years to kind of get through this process of understanding syndications and multifamily. And now I feel like people are trying to make it seem like expediting that process within, you know, what, a 
three-day course or something like that. And I mean, just the fact that, like you said, you're able to tap into just the power of networking, that you're able to tap into these family offices that have an expertise in said asset class. And, you know, you're offering value to them because you've got an audience and you've got an investor base that that could assist with the, with the process. And then, you know, they've got an expertise in a specific asset class. So I think you've just done a great job positioning yourself to leverage your strengths, you know, within whatever the medium is. So one, one thing I did want to touch upon just before we get to the last three pack of questions was, so you ha- have a lot of different cash flow strategies. And so for somebody that is you know, that accredited level or just above, how do you help them define what, which of these strategies is really worth their time and effort? Say like the trade line hacking and all these different, you know, you have all these different scenarios on your website. How do you help them balance the, the time investment in doing some of these that offsets, you know, the actual amount of income that they may make from it? Yeah. I mean, accredited investors, I would say just do syndications, but build your network around. So, you don't invest with a shyster guys under, you know, half a million dollars net worth, that's go buy a turnkey, right? Learn, learn it. You mentioned trade line. Trade lines is just a little hobby, right? I mean, I made like 10 grand doing it last year. You, what you do is you, you, uh, you rent out your authorized users on your slots on your credit cards and you get paid a little bit. It's kind of like, I mean, I think it's a lot better than turnkey rentals. So you kind of get the pay and you don't have any skin in the game. There's no down payment. You already got your credit cards. But that's more of a hobby. I mean, it's it's more for like the the broke guys to make some make some fire and get that get some initial capital. I think, um, or if you're kind of crazy like me and you just want to squeeze out every thousand dollars you can, then <laughs> something fun. <or laughs> no, I um, I'd never I'd never heard of it, so I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool. So yeah, he's got a course on his site to check that out uh, around you know kind of becoming an expert in this trade line hacking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just. There's some, I mean, that's, it's pretty simple, right? But there's some nuances to it for sure. That kind of like the course is kind of like a living, living data or living rule book. Things to be on the lookout for like chase cards. They're a little tricky, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up with the contrarian three pack. So I've been, I've been dying to hear this answer from you because, uh, because you have dabbled in so many different investments, but what would you say is the most contrarian investment that you've made in all your years as investing? There's one, but I don't think I can talk about it right now for SEC. But I don't know. I don't really make contrarian investments, right? Like I've just made like just invest for cash flow, right? I think the maybe the biggest contrarian invest thing I say is like people are always asking like, well, is this a good time to invest, you know? And like I just I just feel like like that kind of like train of thought is just somebody who's never ever taken action, don't know. Robert Kiyosaki says there's three sides to a coin, heads and tails, right? So heads and, heads and tails is like, it's a good time, it's a bad time. We don't know. Sophisticated investors don't care, right? They live on that edge of the coin, the third side of the coin. They don't care. They underwrite the deal and numbers, numbers don't lie. We already know what the thing has been forming for the last 12, 24 months. We already know what the trajectory and how much cash flow it's bringing in already. We don't buy anything that doesn't cash flow today. So... I, some people will call that contrarian, right? But I call that dollar cost averaging with the cash flow and having upside in the deal. So I, I, but I get it, right? Like back when I was newer in 2013, 2016, I was like, should I be buying stuff, right? Is the world going to end? And I've kind of just developed, I, I've built up a little bit of a cushion, obviously, 
where I can kind of get things drop 10%, I'm fine. But the way I see it is like, if you're cash flowing something today and you can, you can like do the sensitivity analysis and if your occupancy drops or you have a few months that go vacant and you're good, then I don't see what the problem is. I mean, again, stick to the simple passive cash flow gravy train and just invest in deals that cash flow today and with a little bit of value add and that's, you're good. You don't have to worry about what the market is. I think that's such an important point, especially in, in COVID times, right? I mean, I think that's like what everyone's kind of trying to throw out there. These, you know, up and coming syndicators and just folks is like, is, is now the time? And to your point, I mean, the numbers don't lie. So as long as you're being conservative with your underwriting and like you said, your reversion cap, what your exit looks like is, is within reason, then, you know, why wait today versus tomorrow? Because to your point, the conversation's been had in 2016 and 2018, you know, hey, you know, how many guys have been sitting on the sideline for two, three, four years now saying, hey, I'm waiting for this downturn. And even when COVID hit and the bottom dropped out, prices have remained flat, if not even gone up, right? I mean, cap rates seem to be compressing a little bit more even now. I mean, cash flow is more valuable today than it was in March because it's a lot harder to find than it was in March. It's a big marketing thing, right? Like all the big gurus, they want to like paint doom and gloom because that's what sells whatever they're selling, right? Whether they're getting, trying to get paid on commissions for gold and silver or their next secret newsletter that you have to pay $300 a month for or doom and gloom sells more than, you know, prudent, taking a look at stuff, buy it, want that slow and steady approach. So I think whenever you look at like an influencer, like ask why, why are they doing this? What, how are they making money? That's a tremendous point. Yeah. How are they, how are they making money? Uh, it's tremendous. So what's your, what's your favorite thing to do with friends and family outside of, outside of business? Um, I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't really have, like, I don't have kids. So I just spent all my day doing this. So I don't have to do this hopefully in the next couple of years. Like this deals all day long. I work 12 to 15 hours a day. I'm fried. I got to figure out, find some staff to help me out, um, take some of this workload off of me. But I try and I'd like to do CrossFit. I don't surf. I don't have time for that. I don't golf. I just, yeah, I like CrossFit because it's quick. I can get it over with. I was going to um, say, I saw, saw some videos before of you doing some burpees. So I, I know you get active at time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it helps like, you know, the physical, if you're not, you can't push it that hard. Right. But I don't know. I mean, I just, I just feel like creating all this like content and helping other people. This time isn't, I'm not going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Heavens no, but that's just my attitude on life. It's like, you go hard at it. You created that critical mass and then you don't have to do anything. Right. Just like when I was living frugally, my first five years of investing, like, I mean, dirty stuff. I mean, I have a section on my website. Like I think it's simple slash cheapo but all like the really crazy things that I would do to save money that I don't do now. I mean, I still do the cheap Kurt K cup coffee. I don't go to Starbucks now because it just takes too much time. Who has time to stand in line? I just make it right here. Throw a little bit of like instinct going on. Good. Right. So it's not about saving money, but saving time. I think that's what's more important today. Saving time. I mean, you either pay with one or the other, right? Time or your time or your money. So yeah, so, you, you can trade time for, you can trade money for time, but you can't trade the opposite. It's hard to trade the opposite unless you buy a private jet. 
time. <laughs> hey, you know, soon enough, man. Soon enough. Yeah, we'll be seeing you in the Gulfstream here. Uh, you know, yeah. simple passive yeah. cash flow dot plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm going to do that. That's kind of douchey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then the last question is what offers you the most fulfillment in doing all of this? I just like to help out, like, working professionals like I mean I was a working professional and like you know it's hard like because you you've been fed all these financial lies throughout your life go to school study hard when everybody's screwing around outside in the sun you're out there studying for the midterm or whatever and then you go into a job where you have to suck it up for five years and be the new guy and then then you get like a 10% raise and get 50% more nonsense to deal with I mean it's a hard life but that's what makes our country grow and but I don't know. I think there's a, there's a different way, you know, buy a house to live in, right? I don't particularly believe in that dogma. But if people, I think a lot of working professionals, if they were to get the money and the means to quit their day job or go part-time, that how much like ability those people have to go do something bigger, right? So like if I can free somebody and they go start a nonprofit, that's kind of cool, right? Like to me, that's just not my thing. My thing is just enabling folks to do that. Yeah, that's tremendous. And I mean, I think, yeah, being able to help others accomplish their goals and aspirations is, is by far, you know, a, a extremely fulfilling. So yeah. Lane, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. How can our listeners get in touch with you out there? Yeah, um, they can go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com and then uh, check out the podcast, Simple Passive Cashflow. Sounds good. Well, till next time, this has been Contrarian Cashflow. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.